2: na na Bird of Paradise Productions, Motereo Irirangi or From emmae at gmail.com to Noelmaxee at gmail.com. Thursday, March 26, 6.46 pm. Subject line Thursday as an essential worker. My car is now a COVID 19 decontamination unit. I keep my hospital bag in there. It contains black theatre crocs, my FPOS card and ID cards, my letter confirming I'm allowed to be on the streets as a hospital worker, a bottle of hand sanitizer, my little bottle of diaphanous perfume, five pens and my clear bobby brown lip gloss. I wear exercise gear to the hospital, stuff that into a separate bag and put my scrubs on. I park in the most expensive car park, $40 a day usually, and my heart thrills a little. Surely parking wardens are not essential services. When I get home, nobody is allowed to touch me or anything that's been to the hospital with me. I have a scalding hot shower and rub all my exterior surfaces raw with soap. Then Nico is allowed to give me a cuddle. From Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ, I call Emma Espinaraho, and this is Getting Better A Year in the Life of a Māori Medical Student. Episode 7 Pandemic. Only us final year students were allowed to stay on the wards during lockdown. The fourth and fifth years had to go home. Same for anyone who was immune compromised, and those of us with dependents were given the option of standing down. We were only allowed to stay on the proviso that we couldn't be involved with COVID patients, so we weren't taking anything like the same risks as the other health professionals. It was still pretty weird, though.
1: There were definitely hardly any patients. It was a very different experience because I guess lockdown had just started from that sort of Monday, was it? I yeah, that's there? right, yeah. yeah.
2: This is Freeman. He's a final year medical student like me, a fellow MAPAS student. So that's Martin Pacific Admissions Scheme. We both spent lockdown on placement at Auckland Hospital.
1: And so less patients were coming in, obviously, because they were a little bit frightened because they probably got chronic illnesses and they felt that they were part of that vulnerable population as well. And fair enough, um, we didn't want to scare them, but we also didn't want them to stay at home. Unfortunately, that message wasn't necessarily, I think, brought well across to them through media or through whatever channel. It doesn't matter. It didn't happen. And so we ended up with maybe three patients a day or something, which is very different to, you know, perhaps 12 to
2: Yeah, usually it's a really heavy workload, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it was quite sobering to see, you know, we had so many meetings, so there were lots of COVID prep meetings, which I I felt quite reassured by that personally, but then you see them um, blocking off the COVID ward, you know, and then building the special parts of ICU Mm, to host mm. the patients. Like, that
1: made it feel really real for me. Very different, yeah. I think, too, because there were specific... doctors involved in that and so if you were on the COVID you were just you know sticking around your COVID bunch of people your COVID bubble rather and the walls are structured such that it's I guess plastered off and then you've got these tape around and it looks very sterile and like a bunker and, yeah yeah <laughs> something you see on the movies that um
2: it was totally like the <laughs> movies it was like contagion or yeah it was pretty surreal Now, there was a bit of a phony war aspect to all of this, with people actively avoiding the hospital at the beginning of lockdown. We had roughly two thirds of our normal patient load on the general medicine wards. There were still things that needed doing. Patients still needed to be worked up, bloods taken, illnesses investigated. But there were fewer of them, so the pace was steady. We had time to sit down for a coffee rather than sculling it back on the run. But not knowing what was coming next was stressful. We were all looking at the death tolls rising overseas. I could see the anxiety in colleagues' faces, and frightened doctors aren't two words you ever want to put together, really. We were afraid of getting sick, but even more than that was the fear that someone we loved might
1: die alone. You know, that's a really difficult one, because on the one hand, you want to balance not propagating a virus with ensuring that people get, you know, die a good death, I suppose, is the way to structure it. And... Uh, that became particularly important to me because last week my father had a cardiac arrest and there is still, even under level 2 now, restrictions around hospital visiting. And it's quite difficult to go and visit him, you know, because mm. there are only two people can visit. And
2: so such. what did you have to do? Because you also used your knowledge of the system to yes. get the information that you needed about, yeah. you know, because it was unclear. I remember you messaged me yeah. um, and you said, oh, Dad, sounds like he's, you know, he's had a cardiac arrest and... I,
1: I don't know how he is. Knowledge of the system is convenient. I obviously called the doctors involved and and asked about what had happened and had got the information a little bit better.
2: Do you think they treated you differently because you're a colleague?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. One, it was more efficient for them to provide me the information in the first instance so they didn't have to use patient-friendly talk. But there was also just a... A difference in treatment uh, if you're a colleague here
2: yeah. yeah and which which is worrying eh? like you wonder what
1: happens to our whānau when we're not there. Yeah, and I think that was important for just some of some of the care that occurs that you know should be happening and isn't and then you can demand it for yourself yeah um, yeah which I did do in my dad's case search so. okay.
2: <laughs> and is he all right?
1: Yeah, he's doing well.
2: This pandemic made it even more difficult and frightening to navigate a health system that already isn't working as well as it could for Māori. Freeman was able to advocate for his father because of his medical training, but we shouldn't have to be related to a health professional to be able to get the care and information that we need. I know as medical students, our families, you know, as soon as we get into medical school basically asking us advice. So were you fielding calls and... Facebook Messenger messages fielding, from your family
1: Yeah, all of the above. Feeling calls from family members who are concerned about, you know, their age and just all the things that they would seen on Facebook is, you know, is this even true because they've seen all these hoax videos and so it was kind of, you know, being nice to them in a way and communicating communicating effectively that yes, this isn't a joke and actually um, we need to take this seriously.
2: Which is a really good point because like in the hospital we were all watching the 1pm briefings like, you know, glued to the screen every day and getting this really good information as well as what we got through the hospital but that wasn't necessarily the case for the public.
1: No, not at all. And, uh, you know, we got the 1pm, the we're having meetings all the time um, on general medicine about just how to wash your hands sometimes. <laughs> and just not what to do. You know, I think we got a, a so lecture like a from... a briefing on washing your hands. <laughs> on washing your hands.
2: Yeah, and that's like, I mean, back to our patients not really coming in, I think, you know, for Māori in particular who might not have... Though, you know, those communication channels we know aren't necessarily as effective for Māori. Um, yeah. And I know, like anecdotally from up north a lot of the kāumātua were delaying coming in and also that not wanting to be a burden mm. you yeah, know feeling so like well. the health system was was preparing for this big pandemic and then oh I've just got a bit of chest pain I'll just stay at home
1: I think because I, I monitored Facebook quite religiously during Covid and something that Ngā Rauru did which is uh, Maiwi is it communicate really well about Covid so what the government was communicating was also being reiterated by Ngā and and, in a more... Right, so they
2: repackaged it for whānau. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I thought that was probably one of the best things that iwi could do.
2: COVID did a really good job of exposing systemic problems and also giving us an opportunity to fix them. Just like that, we managed to feed the hungry and house the homeless in Auckland. It also gave whānau the opportunity, albeit not in ideal circumstances, to express Tēnōrangatiratanga. All over the country, iwi, sometimes working with police, instituted checkpoints to protect ourselves. It probably bears noting that these actions sometimes met with some pretty fierce opposition from Pākehā.
0: So the fundamental dishonesty continues. It seems the most remarkable thing, don't you think, to think you can uh, set yourself up a roadblock, pretend to call it a checkpoint and get approval from the Prime Minister and the Police Commissioner. As we found That's out... a
2: radio host reminding us that Pākehā don't always take kindly to Māori asserting te For many iwi, that decisive action was born of bitter experience. We already know what the effects of a pandemic look like in our communities. We can remember our parents talking about the flu epidemic and that down at the Urupa, uh, even though the old
3: side of the Urupa doesn't look full, in the middle of the cemetery is a big, huge mass grave. And that was from the flu epidemic in the early
2: 1900s. This is my uncle Keelan. When we were framing up this episode, our producer Noel asked me, so is he your dad's brother? No, not that kind of uncle. It's a Māori thing. With years of experience working in Holder, he was part of a COVID response team that made the decision to close our marae, to kōrehe, at kuku. Bearing in mind that Māori died at seven times the rate of non-Māori in 1918, part of that decision-making responsibility was planning for the very worst. Do you remember some of those stories?
3: He was a shared... Yeah, that they said they prepared the two pāpaku and I don't think they actually created coffins for them as such. They just wrapped them in muslin or in cloth, laid them down on the atia at the marae, did karakia and then buried them pretty much straight away. Mm. There's nothing, there's no evidence, nothing, no kōrero, Um, as to who they are and they might not even be all of ours. There might be others within the community that passed that were buried mm. down there as well.
2: I remember going to a talk on the lessons of the 1918 influenza pandemic. Academics showed graphs and talked about death rates and clipped professional tones. In our urupā next to State Highway 1, when we go to bury our whānau, we're bumping up against the bones in the mass grave of ancestors whose names we still don't know. No wonder Keelan and the others moved fast to close here. And then, like a lot of us, they got creative – it was awesome to see everyone at Kuku using technology to stay connected as we went into lockdown. My cousin Courtney was right in the middle of that.
3: Courts was the one who set up the initial um, Zoom page for them, and I a few of the ones had to go around and show the Danny's and koros how to hook up on their laptops and away we went. And the more that the word got out, uh, at the height of COVID, we were getting between 50 to 60 people from all around the world. And what courts realised early on in the piece is we were coming on at 7 and everyone was just surprised to see each other and wanted to know how were they coping, did they have everything they needed, were the aunties and uh, the nannies that lived on their own fine. So what we decided to do was she opened up the room a half an hour earlier. So if you wanted to catch up, jump on early, have you catch up. If you wanted to stick around later, you could. And um, karakia would be on at seven, everyone just mute. I'd come on and do karakia and finish, and then Fano would stay on and chat. Some of them were using it as a opportunity for them to get together once a week. They'll see everyone in their own Fano, and I, I hear the Wilsons were playing quiz games. So it was really, really mana-enhancing for everybody.
2: Life went on during lockdown. In the first week, Uncle Keelan had two strangers burst his bubble – a man trying to get to Levin knocked on his door when he couldn't get a ride on the state highway. Keelan couldn't believe it when it happened a second time.
3: By the end of that week, 10.30 at night, we had this young girl with a baby coming. As soon as I got around the corner, I said, like, what's going on? Oh, this girl, she's run out of the
2: picture. What? Keelan and his whanau live right by the marae. If you were driving on State Highway 1 at 10.30 at night on that first week of lockdown, theirs would have been the only light on.
3: Oh, hi. What do you mean, hi? What happened to staying in your own bubble? She ran out of the petrol down at the corner and saw our house sick. And again, I just gave her two barrels all the way to her car, and then she goes, oh, look, you don't have to be rude.
2: It's a hard situation, eh? A woman with a baby knocks at your door for help in the night. What do you do? Sure, she's not being responsible. She's not doing what the system says she's supposed to. But at the same time, she's here. She's got a baby. She's in need. A real test of our tanga, is how Keelan described it. Even though he was furious, he helped her fill up her tank. He tried to get her name for contact tracing, but he thinks she gave him a fake one.
0: Our issues for our Māori communities don't just disappear because there's a pandemic
2: going on. This is Salah Hart, CEO of Harpai Te Haora. She's my boss. I work part-time for Harpai and Communications. Apologies for the crackly line. I rang her up during lockdown to talk about what the future holds as the long hangover from COVID kicks in.
0: Absolutely. I think that some of the key issues we will see will be poverty-related. We will have a number of people that might have been in uh, low-paid employment uh, that have now not got that opportunity in front of them. And so that will then uh, continue to add levels of stress, pressure, and all sorts of other related issues that will increase our potential our potential rise in domestic violence, if it hasn't already um, shown itself, our potential rise in our addiction rates
2: and or abuse of substances um, to cope or as coping mechanisms. The big Health and Disability Services report that came out earlier this year sets out an ultimate aim of keeping people well for longer, as opposed to having to provide treatment in hospitals. But how are we going to achieve this if the determinants of health are being put even further out of reach for Fano by COVID?
0: I think some of the real issues will just be amplified. They, again, they haven't gone away. They're actually probably going to... Um, we're going to go through a period of even worse-off health and wellbeing stats for our whānau, and and especially our kids as well, thinking about the stresses that they will have on top of them while their parents are potentially coping with unemployment or navigating a space
2: of trying to uh, gain re-employment. The thing about COVID, though, is that it showed beyond any doubt that government can take action and fix, actually fix, problems that were long considered just too big and too knotty before.
0: I think one of the shining stars, though, and I hope that it continues to shine post-COVID, the way in which we were able to mobilise um, our homeless whānau off the streets, that has been probably one of the things that I've, I've been really watching quite closely, but I, I do really hope that there is a sustainable approach that the government will take and invest in to ensure that those whānau aren't kicked back out onto the streets.
2: I've been in hospitals where people have been discharged with no homes to go to, but we got people off the streets here in Auckland because we had to. The framework for what's possible has been altered by a crisis that shook us out of our apathy towards chronic social issues. In this sense, COVID represents a big opportunity to finally make our system fair for everyone. And I really do hope that through this
0: process we see a change to the health system that prioritises those that need to be prioritised and we don't just go back to what was simple and easy and it was what, what we used to do. You've been in public health for a long time now. How realistic
2: do you think that is?
0: <laughs> I'm always an op- optimist, you know. I'm always looking for the glass half full. We need more Maori public health graduates through, uh, you know, like what I've always said, we need more champions and I think through the um, establishment and continuation of the Te Ropu Papa Uruka group has really seen some of our public health Māori public health leaders stand up and and take the positions that they should have always been allowed and they have been allowed to a certain extent but I want to see more of that I want to see us be enabled to make our own decisions and to lead out the change that is required. I don't know whether or not we're going to get there in the next wee while, but I will always remain
2: optimistic. Earlier this year, Arundhati Roy wrote about the opportunity that COVID is giving us. She says, Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Of course Salah sees this opportunity, and of course she has advice for me. She always has advice, and she doesn't sugarcoat it.
0: Be strong. Don't ever turn down the opportunity to uphold our mana, because you are one of us. You represent us in that system. You are one of very few that has the voice that can carry our whakaro, our uh, kaupapa, and what we know we need which I suppose is is probably more of a burden than anything because we have the expectations of you as our connection to unpacking some of the systematic uh, issues that we have within our health system. But in saying that, that is what we're born into. We're born into holding
2: up and advocating for our people. As trainee doctors, we do feel that responsibility. Whether it's advocating for our own family members or the whanau we meet on the wards, that's the added dimension of studying medicine when you're Māori. It was interesting reflecting on this with Freeman. Since I've had my tarmol call, like I'm more identifiable to Māori patients, and they're way stroppier with me mm. because they're like, oh well, you're not, you're not someone I have to, you know, um, kind of look up to in a hierarchy sense. You're, you know, like whānau okay. and so they yeah. can they can ask a lot more of me, which I think is really interesting because it's not usually our Māori patients who feel confident to ask us for what they want or, you know, like when you think of the patients that are best at advocating for themselves
1: it's not the It's party. definitely not Māori and I could see that in my dad's case who, you know, he wasn't even capable of asking for, you know, effective pain relief and I had to do it for him and he'd only be getting sort of all. but it's a, it's a complex case where he's, one, not communicating but two, we're also not identifying that pain to begin yeah, with correct. really effectively so that's um, our responsibility as And as is well
2: he as... sort of a stoic type?
1: He's quite stuck, but you know, it was obviously more comfortable with me to, yeah. to, to relay that information. Oh, well, I'm glad you were there
2: for him. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. The big health and disability system review that we mentioned earlier covers a lot of the same issues we've looked at and getting better, like institutional racism and numerous failings to honour te Tiriti. It also sees the immense value of kopapa Māori, Māori led solutions. But despite seeing all this, it comes up with a fairly mundane solution a plan for a Māori health authority, but with no real sense if it'll be anything other than a bunch of advisors with no power to do anything. The pandemic saw our government act fast to save lives. Why don't they tackle inequities in health with anything like the same urgency?
1: I think that the difference here is obviously that COVID attacks people quite quickly and has a a high rate of death, as we've seen nationwide. Um,
2: Yeah, so it was like, it was acute, right? You know, whereas um, a lot of the issues that we have have in equity are 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 chronic.
1: Yeah, and so the intergenerational... Traumas, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but
2: it's the thing. It's, you know, like if you can define an enemy and it's one that we can all unite against, then it's easy. But when you're t- talking about things like institutional racism... Where, where
1: it only affects 14% of the population, it's less likely to yeah, to grab hold, whereas if it were perhaps the other 90% of the population or whatever, yeah. excuse me, 86, then perhaps it might have...
2: When we started this, we had no idea that a once-in-a-generation pandemic was just around the corner. But COVID really crystallises the whole point of this series. The implicit judgement and apathy around a collective, generations-old tolerance of poor outcomes for Māori. Tolerance of the fact that many of us have to get by below the poverty line, that we get sicker than Pākehā, die younger, that we lose our nannies too soon and our kōros. We, the collective we, seem to be okay with that, But then COVID comes along, and it's not just Mori trying to get by on a benefit that is insufficient. And it's not just Māori at risk of dying too soon, leaving behind our children and our grandchildren too soon. Then suddenly, we show how we can stop everything, shut down the economy, figure out higher benefits. So what do you take from that? That Māori dying too young in Aotearoa is something we can tolerate? That it's business as usual?
3: What's happening over in America has sort of a timely... Um, For us to sort of reflect on our communities here in New Zealand, again, you know, black does matter, Māori does matter, and Aotearoa Māori does matter, and our partners need to remember that.
2: We wrote this episode as the streets are full of protesters marching for Black Lives Matter. It's hard to tell if things are really about to change, but it feels like there's a shift in the making.
3: And we're not going anywhere, because there's nowhere else to go, this is home. That makes mm. me happy and sad. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, and I, I look at my island brothers and sisters, and think you're so lucky. You can call this home, but there is another home you can go home to. Tōtūra But for us, this is our
2: home. COVID or no COVID, I'm nearly there. After six years, I'm about to become a very valuable, highly trained cog in a system whose limitations we've spent the last seven episodes exploring. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that my training has influenced my thinking. Clinical, objective inquiry is the cornerstone of our profession. These are the tools we use to assess and triage. But the thinking and feeling parts of me knows that it's our humanity that will make us good doctors. The best doctors I've met in this series were thinking and feeling. Our system lacks humanity. We lack humanity when we call Māori statistics for death and disease good enough, when we aren't horrified by the difference in outcomes for Māori babies, Māori Fano when compared to the Pākehā majority. This system, our system, is rigged. And it's, to use a scientific term, bullshit. But I'll still stand up when my name is called at the end of this year, accept my degree, and smile for the camera. I'll look forward to joining my colleagues who are committed to doing better for our patients, even within an imperfect system, to join the ranks of us who are dreaming of something better and working every day to bring that dream closer to reality. And I'll be proud to be a Māori doctor. Getting Better is an original series from Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ. The show is hosted by me, Emma Espiner, and written by me and Noel McCarthy. Noel McCarthy was the senior producer. John Daniel was the script editor, and Gabriel Baker was our consulting producer. Sound design and mixing by Andre Upston. Music by Pitch Black. With thanks to Patty Free and Michael Hodgson. Our main title graphics and episode illustrations are by Gabriel Baker. Kate Elmer's is RNZ's senior commissioner, and Tim Burnell is the commissioning coordinator. Thanks also for the support from RNZ Kudahotu Māori, Shannon Honui Thompson. This series was made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund.
0: Botox Cosmetic, Ata Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.